You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. Ransomware exists, and it makes it into these very large, diverse, heavily regulated environments. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the CyberWire's Hacking Humans podcast, where each week we look behind the social engineering scams, phishing schemes, and criminal exploits that are making headlines and taking a heavy toll on organizations around the world. I'm Dave Bittner from the CyberWire, and joining me is Joe Kerrigan from the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute. Hello, Joe. Hi, Dave. We've got some good stories to share this week, and later in the show, we've got my interview with Devon Kerr. He is the team lead with Elastic Security Intelligence and Analytics, and we're going to be discussing ransom. Somewhere. And we are back. Joe, before we dive into stories this week, we got a little bit of feedback from a listener. All right. A letter from someone they wrote in and they said, uh, my ex-wife just refinanced her house. The entire affair was conducted at her house. Mm -hmm. After her initial visit to the company's business office, a place she was familiar with because she had financed with this company before, there were no emails exchanged. The rest of the contact, not that there was very much, was done via the phone. She was personally familiar with the guy who came to the house for the transaction. I got the impression that the reason the refinancing company did it this way was to eliminate email fraud possibilities by essentially eliminating emails. Hmm. Interesting. Uh, That is interesting. Yeah. Yeah. That, That may very well be the case. Yeah, sort of going old school, taking it offline. That's right. (laughs) All right. Well, thanks to our listener for sending that in. I'm going to kick off our stories this week. I have a story from Naked Security, the folks over at Sophos. And I think this is a nice review to sort of start off our year. The article's titled Seven Types of Virus, Mm. a short glossary of contemporary cyber badness. The list here is key loggers, data stealers, ram scrapers, bots, banking trojans, rats, ran ransomware. Let's just go through them real quick here. Uh, key loggers, that's pretty obvious what that is. That's right. when uh, they install something that logs everything that you type into your computer, and that's a, sort of a brute force way to gather information. Yeah, and it, what it usually has is some kind of data exfiltration mechanism. Otherwise, what good is the log, right? Right, right, uh, sending it off somewhere. That lets, lets people go off. And generally what they'll look for is they'll look for like tabs or clicks between two pieces of information. That's usually a username, mm. or that can be a username and password. Uh, the second one is data stealers. This is similar to a key logger, but it does a little more rooting around in your system. Mm-hmm. And it's doing uh, pattern matching. So it's looking for certain things like credit card numbers, ID numbers, passwords, email addresses, all those sorts of things. And, and again, sending it off to the bad guys. This third one, a RAM scraper. Explain to us what that one is, Joe. So a RAM scraper is something that looks at the active memory in your PC. And a lot of times in that active memory, you might have things like keys, symmetric encryption keys that you might be using to conduct a secure transaction with a website, or you might have passwords in there. So by going into the RAM, this is stuff that hasn't been written to your hard drive. Right. So it's sort of more uh, temporary, ephemeral information that wouldn't be expected to be permanently retained. One of the big advances in our computers these days, I mean, how many gigs of RAM do you have in your computer? All of them. I have 16 (laughs) gigs of RAM in my computer at home and 32 or 64 in the one at the office. Mm -hmm. So these RAM scrapers go in there after that data. Tons of it in there. Yeah. The next category are bots. Uh Bots is when uh, some uh, code gets put on your system and it's then used to make your system do whatever they want it to do. Right. It's usually an independent toolkit kind of thing, you know, so you have a you have software that's running on your computer that's communicating with some command and control system mm-hmm. that might be doing something like 
performing a DDoS attack or mining cryptocurrencies or something. Right. And this is where uh, your IoT devices tend to oh, get yeah. wrangled <laughs> into bots, your, because, your security cameras, and yeah. things like that. In IoT, the S is for security. <laughs> right, right. It's funny. <laughs> uh, the next category is banking Trojans. Yep. Very it, dangerous pieces of equipment. They go after your specifically target your banking information for the purpose of stealing access to your accounts. Uh, next up are rats, remote access Trojans. Or, or some people call them remote access tools. But these are something that kind of have a legitimate use. Think about the phone call we get where it's Joe or Dave's lifetime technical support from right. the parents, right? Yeah. Yes. And you don't want to drive over to the house. So <laughs> yeah. you put a remote administration tool on their system and you log in and you can help them out without having to go over there. But that same functionality can absolutely be used as a malicious vector. Yeah, and this is one we hear of where a lot of the tech support scams. Exactly. It's the first thing in. the tech support scams do is they they say, go install this uh, remote access tool so we can get on your computer. Yeah, and if they have, if you give them that access, they have complete control of your computer, yes, more they or do. less. And then the last category here, saving the best for last, right. is ransomware. <laughs> Something we talk about here a lot, and that's where they, they get a hold of your computer and they start encrypting files. And they tell you that in order to get those files back, you have to pay them some money. Yep. And you may or may not get those files back. That's right. Some ransomwares are not ransomware. They're just fake ransomware. It's easier to just wipe someone's hard drive and then tell them that you encrypted the files. They've got some good tips here uh, to try to prevent these sort of things. Of course, keeping your systems up to date, they say patch early and patch often. Mm -hmm. uh, that's a big one. Look for and act on warning signs in your logs. Now, this would apply, I guess, more to enterprise folks who yes. are monitoring those system logs. And then defense in depth. What's the plain English explanation of defense in depth? My favorite one is the belt and suspenders approach. Ah, right? yeah. A terrible fashion faux pas, but keep your butt crack from showing, Dave. <laughs> so, <laughs> Most importantly, right. mercifully. <laughs> right. So for defense in depth, and, and most particularly here in ransomware, you would keep multiple backups, right? I like to quote one of my first mentors in this field, the late Jeff Russell, who told me that the first rule of computing is backup, 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 and backup, mm -hmm. right? And that's really the best defense against any kind of loss of data. A great example of defense in depth is using a, a second factor authentication. So if, even if they do compromise your banking credentials with a, with a banking Trojan, mm -hmm. they're not getting in without having access to your phone which is a lot harder to get. Right. Even if you're just using SMS security that we've talked about here, it's not the greatest form of, of second factor or multi-factor authentication, but it's better than nothing. Way better. Yeah. 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 All right. Well, a uh, good article from the folks over at Naked Security. We'll have a link to that in the show notes. Joe, what do you have for us this week? Well, Dave, it's, uh, it's tax season, right? Already? Yes. Uh, okay. Every January, this kind of ramps up. So the IRS has a Twitter feed. And of course, because it's tax season, and we've talked about this before Christmas with the scammers going after package delivery, now it's tax season, they're going to move on to tax scams. Mm -hmm. So the IRS tweeted some red flags that you should look out for when you're receiving communication from the IRS, actually for any scammer, really. They're going to pose as a trusted source. They're going to try to get that authority power behind what they're saying. They're going to tell you something's wrong with your account. They're going to claim you're in violation of the law, which is a big one. It scares a lot of people. Yeah, sure. They're going to tell you to open a link or an attachment, which, right. you, of course, we always say don't click on the link. Mm -hmm. And they're going to ask you to log into a familiar looking but fake website. And we've talked about the social engineering toolkit on this show before, but yeah. that will let you clone a website just by essentially entering a URL, mm -hmm. right? And then making a couple changes to it. But it's remarkably good. Additionally, they have some tips here, some good information. They have a website titled, How to Know It's Really the IRS Calling or Knocking on Your Door. Because <laughs> they will call you 
yeah. they will knock on your door. Yeah. They have some telltale signs. IRS agents conducting audits may call taxpayers to set up the appointments or discuss items on the audit. Right? Yes. But they will not make a demand for payment at this point in time. Right. They're, they're calling because an audit is not necessarily going to end terribly for the, the person who's being audited. No. I, I have been through that, actually. Yeah. I, I have been through an audit where they come to your house and look around. Really? Yeah. If you get a call like this, don't panic. It's not necessarily the, the end of the world. Right. They may show up and attempt to collect a tax debt, but they're never going to make a demand that you make an immediate payment to any other place than the United States Treasury. Oh. So whenever you're making a payment to the IRS, it is going to be to the U.S. Treasury. The criminal investigators may actually show up, but these are law enforcement agents. They are not going to make a demand for payment. Oh, I okay. see. Hmm. So there's there's two different branches of this. They have a list on this website of things the IRS does not do. They do not call making a demand for immediate payment via gift card or via wire transfer. <laughs> right, right. Right. None of this happens. <laughs> right. And the first contact from the IRS is always going to be a letter that's essentially a tax bill. It's not going to come out of the blue. That's really the big thing about this is if if you're not expecting a call from the IRS, if you have no reason to expect a call from the IRS, it's probably not the IRS. Hmm. You would know that you're going to get these calls or gonna, you're going to get a visit. Yeah. Right? Yeah. They'll, they, get, they'll get a letter first. You'll get a letter the first. The letter may say, expect our call. Right. Yeah. Yep. They will never demand that you pay taxes without the opportunity to question or appeal the amount that they say you owe. Hmm. Right. That's due process. And we have that here in the United States. Yeah. And the IRS is subject to this as well. They will never threaten to bring in the local police as well. They have their own law enforcement agency. And if it gets to that point, you're going to know that, <laughs> that right. it's gotten to that point. On this website that we have the link to, if an IRS representative actually visits you, he or she will provide two forms of official credentials. Hmm. And one of them is called a pocket commission, and the other one is called an HSPD-12 card. Hmm. Now, the HSPD-12 <laughs> card is a government-wide standard for federal employees and contractors. Here's something I don't like about this website from the IRS, and I'd like the IRS to change this. So if you're listening... IRS, make this change. <laughs> Joe's got some requests. I've got I've got some information here. It says you're entitled to ask for these credentials and you're entitled to verify them. Uh -huh. And then it says the representative will provide you with a dedicated IRS telephone number for verifying the information and confirming their identity. That's unacceptable, IRS. That phone number needs to be on this web page right here. Oh, yeah. Um, mm -hmm. Because if a scammer manages to reproduce one of these HSPD-12s with a convincing level of counterfeiting, then they're probably already going to have a number with one of their buddies at it. And, go, and he's going to say, here's the IRS number. Call and verify. Mm -hmm. And if you call and verify, the guy's going to say, oh, yeah, that's that's a real IRS agent. You better give him the gift cards. Right. But if the IRS put this number on this page, then a real IRS agent could say, go to irs.gov and click on this link and you'll get the number to verify this information. Yeah. That yeah. is much more secure than having the agent give the taxpayer the telephone number. I suspect also it's it's probably within your right or you can certainly make the request that you go to their office to have this meeting. You can do that as well. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, that yep. way, you know, it's got that big old sign on the side of the building. That's right. All right. Well, it's good information and certainly something to, to keep an eye out for this time of year. These, yeah, these IRS scams, they are all over the place. They're going to be... It's going to be thick with them this year. Absolutely. All right. Well, it's time to move on to our catch of the day. Joe, our catch of the day was sent in by a listener. This is a romance scam from someone claiming to be Sophia. 
I'm going to read it here, but before I do, I, uh, I want to describe the image that came along with this picture. I have to say I'm not typically a fan of tattoos, yeah. but in this case I'm willing to make an exception. <laughs> uh, this is a, a lovely young lady who is uh, leaning toward the camera, and her entire, uh, I'd say, top half of her torso yep. is uh, a lovely tattoo of an octopus. And uh, it's uh, kind of uh, kind of alluring there, uh, Joe. What do you think? Um, not your thing. Not my. The, the octopus <laughs> isn't my thing. No. Okay. <laughs> Fair, all right. Perhaps I've said too much. Right. <laughs> At any rate, <laughs> here's the text. Hello, my name is Sophia. As my display name implies, I'm a pretty devil. <laughs> At least I have a sense of humor. How about you? I am single, no boyfriend or husband lurking about that I must hide my online profile from. I'm employed and my own home. So I'm not living in my parents' basement. At least I have that much going for me. I guess those women always want to go back to your place, don't they? My pictures are current and I am healthy. Okay, I'm not sexy like other model, but I'm not some hairy old fat girl either. In my spare time, I enjoy road trips and photography. I love YouTube and hate TV. I know it's kind of the same thing, minus the commercials. Not a sports fan generally, but I can at least watch an NFL football game once in a while and find it entertaining. I found online dating a tiresome chore. The site is no exception, yet here I am, lured by the promise of potential promiscuity with multiple partners or a partner. Sigh. Even the smartest girls think with the wrong head sometimes, if you get my meaning. I'm sure there are vibrant, charming, interesting, and seductive men. I just haven't met you yet. I guess all one can do is try and hope that our paths shall cross someday. So, Joe. <laughs> this is, what is this, a dating profile on a website? I think so. I Well, I think this is the lure to get you to leave the dating website. Ah, and go to on go, to the second platform. Yes, right. to take you away from the, the safe. Uh, you know, Dave, I don't know why we've never said this before, but, you know, there's there's an old adage about when you're out with uh, a new group of people. Yeah. It's never go to the second location, right? Oh, if, right. You know, mm-hmm. if, you're, if you're at a bar... And somebody says, hey, let's go back to my place. And this is someone you've never met. You say, no, nah, no, nah, we'll hook up later. Bye. Yeah. Right. Yeah. This is the same thing with dating sites. When mm-hmm. somebody says, let's get off this site and go to another site, that's going to a second location. It's the, it's the same thing as going to someone's house where you're going to wind up in a bunch of pickle jars in the basement. <laughs> All right. Well, that is our catch of the day. Coming up next, we've got my interview with Devon Kerr. He is the Elastic Security Intelligence and Analytics team lead. And we're going to be chatting about ransomware. And we're back. Joe, I recently had the pleasure of speaking with Devin Kerr. He works at Elastic Security Intelligence and Analytics. He is their team lead. And we had a good conversation about ransomware. Here's my conversation with Devin Kerr. I think that a lot of folks in the industry held the belief that ransomware would taper off as it was a slightly more cumbersome and alarming practice than coin mining, which you could argue at scale is just as lucrative. But instead, I think what's happening is we're seeing an operationalizing of this criminal approach. To cite one example, Fin6, which is associated with Ryuk and a number of the, the other financial types of intrusions, you know, they cut their teeth basically leading intrusions into payment processors to obtain card data. But I think they realized that there's only so much money in that approach. And either they 
decided that they could innovate and so they should try. And so they started targeting, you know, the MSP customer environments, basically the types of environments where an MSP becomes essential for IT operations are probably reasonable targets that will have a high success rate. If you happen to hit them with ransomware, chances are their disaster recovery won't be able to simply passively restore those things. So I I think that there's reasons why that's occurred. And I think that because we haven't seen that contraction, something a little bit more active has to occur in the industry to correct this. Yeah, it definitely seems as though the trend has been away from that sort of consumer facing shotgun approach where someone locks up your uncle or aunt's computer and and asks for 50 bucks or 100 bucks and Things are a lot more targeted and and also higher stakes these days. Yeah. I I mean, I think there's some evidence that a few of these malware families that are performing ransomware operations on endpoints are specifically looking for enterprise document types. They're looking for Outlook archives that they could destroy. There's absolutely a business impact risk there. And again, I think that if I were a threat actor who wanted to you know, guarantee some amount of revenue, I would probably hedge my bets in that direction. You know, again, vulnerable victims, understaffed, you know, relying on third parties, they're going to trust whatever that third party does. And so it's just, I think, a natural progression to target those third parties customers. What about this trend that we've seen of them going after municipalities? In your research, I mean, is that a true trend or is it as much that when a municipality gets hit, it attracts a lot of attention. There's a lot of uh, press about it. I believe, and what we've observed is that those are often incidental targets. They're basically picked up in larger campaigns. You know, if we use a third party, like an MSP as an example, you know, the folks behind Fin6 may not necessarily know who that MSP's customers are. But once they figure that out, those become very valuable targets of opportunity for the same reason that, you know, anybody using an MSP might be a target of opportunity. You know, again, the chance that they're going to have backups of all their critical data or even know where it is will be limited. Their ability to, to, you know, put personnel behind recovery is going to be limited. And all of those things, I think, ratchet up the pressure on these vulnerable organizations to pay up, which is really, I think, what groups like Fin6 want. They want to monetize. And if you provide them with a mechanism that guarantees them some amount of revenue, they're going to absolutely do that every time. Municipalities just fall into that same bucket. They rely on those third parties to keep pace with the, you know, the state of technology. Um, They rely on those third parties to make things a little bit more usable for their municipal employees. All of those things, I think, you know, have pros and cons from a threat perspective. Yeah, it also strikes me with the municipalities that quite often they are required by legislation to provide certain services, which cranks up the pressure in terms of getting those systems back online. Sure. If you think about it from the perspective of like what a municipality is obligated to provide its citizens or the populations that it serves, the laws that were written that govern those processes, those were created before this phenomenon. So they haven't really taken into account that ransomware exists and it makes it into these very large diverse and heavily regulated environments, you know, especially if you think about where the budgets for those security and IT operations functions come from, those come from the taxpayers, which is that same population that's affected when they lose positive control of their environment. What sort of things are you all tracking when it comes to the the geographic distribution of ransomware? I'm thinking both from where it's coming from and who they're going after. I think there are several organized groups um, that are largely, you know, Central European that have been very successful. Those types of organized financial criminals, you know, it may just be that their portfolios are expanding to 
include things like coin mining and, and ransomware as just alternative revenue streams to traditional, you know, payment card breaches. Some of these same groups also, you know, do seasonal work. You know, if you think about the U.S. tax season, that's a great time that we often see targeting of small businesses because those small businesses usually have a time crunch. And again, when there's pressure, people tend to be a little bit less focused, have less scrutiny. Um, which means a higher rate of success. You do typically see targets, though, in environments where there there is revenue to be had. Um, the U.S. market uh, is uh, is a really large surface area for this type of financial crime, but it's not unique to the United States. Uh, you know, I think we've seen in ransomware type of attacks in dozens of countries. You know, all kinds of verticals. Uh, so there, I wouldn't say that there's like a you know perfect storm set of attributes, but the victims that tend to experience it the most painfully are those who typically haven't invested in um, either security boundaries like network segmentation or they're really in growth mode. Um, those growth businesses are, are typically thinking about, you know, how do I expand my business, not how do I protect it? And um, unfortunately, you know, coming back to that too late can oftentimes be um, a cost they can't recover from. Where do we find ourselves when it comes to recommendations in, in terms of paying the ransom? You know, initially the notion was don't pay the ransom. And we even see some organizations today that are sort of in this situation where they say, well, we didn't pay the ransom, but we paid someone to pay the ransom. <laughs> so you brought up two ideas that I think are both worth decomposing a little further. So one is the phenomenon of like these, you know, these ransomware retainers. You know, if we do it through a third party, is it less of a business liability than if we paid it directly? Um, and and I, I'm not a lawyer, so I can't, I can't really weigh in on the ethical or legal ramifications of that decision. I do think that I've talked with businesses and, and I have to approach this sympathetically because um, mm. in a lot of cases, these businesses, they did not anticipate this outcome. They didn't know that this could happen to them. It was not part of their threat model. Um, if they're even you know, to a level of maturity where they've come up with a threat model, that they understand their landscape. And for that reason, from the business's perspective, a lot of this is like an ambush. It's like they were just minding their own business, you know, doing the things that was necessary. And then this terrible outcome occurred. I think it's hard for them to appreciate the complexity uh, of decisions that leads there. You know, the money we don't mm. spend on an endpoint control, the money we do spend on maybe go to market stuff that raises our visibility um, and projects a sense that there's, you know, there's something here for an adversary to come get, you know, those things typically are made independent of the of the threat landscape or that perspective. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, it reminds me, I, I have a, a friend who's a commercial real estate agent, and he said that, you know, he would often describe to people when trying to plan out their insurance for eventualities, you know, when it came to things like fires, he would say, you know, imagine that you come to work one morning and what's left is a wily e. coyote smoking hole in the ground. And I wonder if ransomware is a similar sort of thing. You know, most of us don't imagine that a fire would be a regular day-to-day -day part of our operations. And yet, most of us have insurance for fires. Oh, ab absolutely. Not, not just that. But if you think about office buildings where people work, you know, building management has a series of regulations that they're upholding. They're working with the local municipal government to meet those requirements for building safety. You know, there's all manner of regulations around how employees are made safe. And so in the event of a fire, you know, your building has to have uh, physical structures that enable people to get out in a timely way. And there's definitions mm -hmm. for what timely means. Um, I feel like in the security industry, 
uh, a lot of those things are ungoverned right now. And although that's not necessarily the, you know, the worst outcome, I think it does give business owners and responsible parties, I, I think, reason to pause and to ask themselves, well, just because it's not the letter of the law, isn't it still essential that we do? How are we going to develop contingencies if this occurs? And again, just make sure that it's it's part of an active decision making process and not just some passive, you know, secondary afterthought. Those are the customers I think that get hit the hardest where for them it's like, well, we meant to get around to this and we knew it mm. was going to be bad. But so much other stuff came up that we prioritized ahead of this because we just thought it was unlikely. Those are the ones that typically get caught unawares and um, it's a much more expensive process. And it's it's expensive, I think, for a lot of reasons. But one of them is it exposes, you know, some of the ad hoc decisions decision-making that goes into infrastructure. And those things generally have to be fixed, which is, you know, a human cost, either time or dollars. Interesting stuff from Devin, yeah? Yeah, indeed. Ransomware is is a big problem. And one of the reasons it's still a big problem is because it works. Disaster recovery, particularly IT disaster recovery, is not mature enough on a broad enough scale to prevent ransomware. If everybody had really great, mature disaster recovery programs, Ransomware would go away because nobody would make a penny from it because they would say, you need to pay us the ransom. And people would say, well, we'll just restore from backups right. and be done. But Devin makes a great point about this. And one of the things he said was that organizations that are in growth mode may not be focusing on disaster recovery or, or ransomware as a threat vector. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right? we'll get around to that <laughs> when things right. calm down. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. I, I don't understand how ransomware is not part of people's threat models. He says that in the interview as well. He talks about how it comes as a surprise to most people. And maybe hmm. that's because I'm steeped in the cybersecurity culture, that this is actually one of the most terrifying things that I think an organization can go through. It can absolutely just destroy your organization if all your data is gone and you haven't made plans for getting it back. Yeah. I wonder, are we at the point still where it's likely that you don't know someone whose business was affected by this? You know what I'm saying? Yeah. I, I know plenty of businesses that have been affected by it, but I don't know those folks. If one of your colleagues has a, a business that burns down, yeah. chances are you're going to make a call to your insurance agent and say, listen, I just want to check in and make sure I'm good here. Right. And that's a, another point that you made is the Wiley e. Coyote smoking hole in the ground. Right. I love that analogy. <laughs> it's one of my favorite things. The mitigation for that kind of physical damage is very similar to the mitigation for a ransomware attack. If I have offsite backups of my data, offsite, offline backups, then a smoking hole in the ground is not a devastating hit to my business in terms of the data. Yeah, I it's can more, get the data yeah, back. It's a nuisance rather than a business killer. Well, yeah, I mean, it, it may be a business killer for other reasons. Mm-hmm. I mean, you may have like, like all my inventory was in there. Now I have just-in-time inventory needs. And it could be a myriad of reasons, but the data recovery portion of it, the recovery is a lot simpler if you have off-site backups. Speaking of nuisance organizations, he talks about coin mining malware. I think that's a lot bigger than we know. I, I think that there is huge amounts of that going on, but it's non-destructive and essentially a nuisance, right? Mm-hmm. So people really don't see what's going on. And sometimes when these guys get in there, what they do is they secure your system. Yeah. <laughs> what their coin miners going offline. Right. So, they kick everybody else out. Right, that, that, kick, that is a real thing where they'll, yeah. uh, the coin miner will come in and it, it'll, it'll basically disinfect your system of other malware because it wants to be running in a pristine environment. Yeah, it's almost like this symbiotic relationship mm-hmm. that companies might have with malware writers who all they ask for is a little bit of electricity and you pay for it. Right. Uh, and in return, they keep your machine free of other things because it's in their interest to do so. Folks in the security biz thought that we're seeing a shift away 
away from ransomware towards coin mining. Right. And it was for that reason, because coin mining can run in the background and mm -hmm. not really draw a whole lot of attention to itself. But right. I think partially because the, the price of things like Bitcoin hasn't gone vertical the way that a lot of people thought it would. Right. It's made it less profitable. But also, I think, like Devin said, ransomware has become more sophisticated and more businesslike as well. Yeah, it, it, that is 100% correct. These guys have help desks to help you decrypt your data some mm -hmm. when they actually infect your system with well-written ransomware. Now, the, these ransomware applications are actually getting better, you know, over time. As people learn their mistakes and they develop new applications or new malware that goes in and encrypts your files. But it is in their interest to help you get that data back when they encrypt it. Thanks to the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute for their participation. You can learn more at isi.jhu.edu. The Hacking Humans podcast is proudly produced in Maryland at the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our coordinating producer is Jennifer Iben. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie. I'm Dave Bittner. And I'm Joe Kerrigan. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.